Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Morning, guys. Welcome to Waypoint Christian Drive-In Church. It's good to see everybody today. What a beautiful morning to be here and worship our Lord and Savior. I just want to say welcome. It's good to see all of you. And uh, we're just going to get right back into worship this morning. Welcome to our Facebook live streamers, restrooms here on the side of the building. Let's pray and let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your beautiful creation all around us. God, a testament every day to your beauty, to your love, God, to your power. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be out here in the open, fresh air, God, to lift our voices to you and God, to bring honor to your name. Father, I pray that you would be glorified this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right, guys. So, uh, amen. To give us an amen this morning, let's uh, let's uh, give us let's give Jesus a honk this morning. So, uh, God is here. Amen. All right. Let's sing. We know He's here. He is good, and He is always good. Let's worship Him. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. Yeah. 
it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop Waymaker, miracle worker Promise keeping God in the darkness My God, that is who you are yeah. Waymaker, miracle worker Promise Tomorrow, he's always been the way maker. He will always make a way. That's our God. This next song is called The Love of God. Um, it's actually one of Seth's favorite songs. Um, if you listen to the words, you'll definitely, you'll definitely know why. Um, it describes God in, in basically the only way we can. He's indescribable. He's, he's unfathomable. He's so awesome. We can't, we, there's not enough words to describe how amazing our God is in the fullness of Him. So as we sing this, just listen to the words. Sing along if you have the lyrics, but, but think about what you're singing, what you're singing about our amazing God. Let's sing. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pain bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. The God of love, from above. 
ocean fill and weather skies of parchment made were every star on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could this grow contain the whole which see everyone and hug everyone. This is hard for me. I'm a hugger and uh, this is like the worst punishment someone could inflict. If you guys have your Bibles, go and open up to Luke chapter 22. These next few weeks, we're not going to be in any one particular theme, any one particular passage uh, during this time of kind of upheaval where nothing's really settled. 
what I'm going to do is just do different passages that uh, the Lord opens up to me during the week. So this passage was, was one that I read through and studied last week in preparation for Easter, but it was really brought home to bear in my heart this week. Jill and I watched a movie together, maybe you guys have seen, it's called Unplanned. And it's the story of Abby Johnson, who was the former Planned Parenthood clinical director who came to faith in Jesus Christ after she was complicit in over 22,000 abortions. It's a tough movie to watch, and I'm not going to at all describe it in detail because of the kids who are listening, but the movie opens up with her after eight years of working in, the, in a Planned Parenthood clinic and being complicit in over 22,000 abortions. Eight years later, she finally actually gets to see one performed, and what she saw horrified her and devastated her and immediately caused her to get out of it. And as I watched it, my stomach was in a knot and I groaned in my spirit as I just thought to myself, how have we come to the place where we can be so cruel, so devastating to people? And it brought me to tears the next day as I thought more and more about it. In Luke 22, we have a short little passage in the context. This is the upper room discourse on Thursday night of Holy Week. Jesus has had the last supper meal with his disciples. He's telling them about many different things. He's teaching them about many different things. And he breaks this news upon them in verse 31. Beginning in verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Let me pray and then we'll get into our text. Father God, I thank you for how you've opened this passage up to me this week, how you've ministered to my heart through it, how you've strengthened me, how you've encouraged me, how you've humbled me. Father, I pray that your spirit does the same now for those listening. Father, that we'd see these great truths in scripture, that we might be wiser, more sanctified, Father, more careful how we live in this world. Father, strengthen us in our faith that we might not fail. We pray all this in Christ's name. In this brief little passage, there's three personalities that I want to focus on this morning and learn something from each one of us, from each one of them, so that we ourselves might take some kind of application for our own lives. The three personalities we see primarily are Satan, Simon Peter, and Jesus. And I'm going to talk about each three of these in turn. First, Satan. Jesus tells the whole group, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. In many Western cult in, in the Western culture today, the existence of angels, let alone Satan, are held with a high degree of suspicion. 
Many relegate these beings to the realm of animism or to an old superstitious era that we've gotten past. Others who are generally religious affirm the existence of angels, but when the church affirms another class of angels, that being a wicked class whose head and leader we call Satan, that's when the world begins to distance itself and scoff. But if we're to take the Bible seriously, if we're to take this book as both the infallible, inerrant word of God, then the only way that we can deny this being called Satan and his demon followers is to do it a priori. We have to come before we read the scriptures and say that's not true. We're told, however, over and over in the Gospels on numerous occasions that not only does Jesus mention Satan by name as existing, but he mentions specifics about Satan and he even allowed himself to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. As a personality who exists, Satan, we are told, exalted himself in pride because of his great power and beauty. And he wanted to ascend to the very throne of God, making himself equal with God. In fact, that's what the whole end times antichrist parallel is about. He was consequently cast out of heaven to earth like lightning, Jesus said. And in his fall, he caused one third of the angels to fall with him. Some of the things that scripture tells us about Satan is he's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. We're told that he's head of a kingdom that opposes the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom called the kingdom of darkness. He has the power of death according to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and he inflicts great fear upon all who are under its sentence. Satan's character is also revealed in scripture and that he's an adversary to both the Lord and, and the Christians. Zechariah 3.1 mentions this. In 1 Peter chapter 5.8, Peter says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone that he may devour. He's given the name devil at least 33 times in the New Testament, a title that indicates both he's an accuser and a slanderer. And in scripture, we see him slandering both God for instance, in Genesis chapter 3, and he also slanders man to God in Zechariah chapter 3. He's called the wicked one in Matthew 13, suggesting not only is he himself wicked, but he is the source and inspiration for all wickedness that we see. For example, in John's gospel, chapter 13, verse 2, John tells us that it was Satan who put into Judas's heart the thought to betray Jesus. We're also told in John chapter 8 that he is a liar and he's the father of all lies. Confirming that he's not only wicked himself, but he is the inspiration behind all wickedness we see. And it was this very point as I watched that movie Unplanned that I thought about. The horror that Abby Johnson witnessed in that abortion clinic and how wicked it was. And I thought that is Satan's inspiration. That is the very thought of Satan that reveals what his thoughts about mankind are and what his intentions are. He's also called the tempter in Matthew chapter 4. And he uses our own sinful desires to tempt and lure us to our destruction, according to James chapter 1. We're told that he is deceptive, transforming himself into an angel of light, illustrating his malice toward men who bear God's image. He is full of great wrath, 
toward people, especially Christians, according to the book of Revelation. And he's bringing his wrath to bear upon us. Consequently, it is against him that we wrestle and against him that we wage war. Paul famously wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Satan has no compassion. He has no love, no concern or care for anyone. He is malicious. He's deceptive. He's arrogant. He's hateful. He's cruel and he's unrelenting. He tempts men in their weakest moments only that he might cause more shame and more misery on them. And he opposes Christ and his followers at every turn. We see this in our account, and sadly, in one of the most sacred settings in Scripture, the upper room, where Jesus is there with his disciples in his most vulnerable night, speaking of the most profound and intimate truths that he can talk about, we find someone else at work in that upper room. Satan was working in the heart of Judas as Judas sat there and listened. And when Judas got up to leave the meal, we are told, Satan then entered him and took possession of Judas to accomplish the deed of betraying the Lord. And he betrayed the Lord with the most malicious way he could, with a kiss. How satanically motivated to betray the Son of God with the sign of intimacy. And I hope that we see the malice reflected in this. Satan is not satisfied, however, according to our text, to have Judas. He asks, rather, he demands, in our passage, according to Luke, he demands to have all the disciples. Back in our text, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. The word you there is plural. And the following one, that he might sift you like wheat. That is also plural. In our West Texas, Eastern New Mexico slang, we translate it this way. Satan has demanded to have y'all and to sift y'all like wheat. So I want you to first see the darkest moment of human history, the night Jesus was betrayed in the garden, the night he was arrested and drug off as a criminal to await his crucifixion. Satan was the demonic inspiration and orchestration behind all of this and he was there during jesus hour of trial asking to have more that he might destroy them as well the next character we see pointed out is peter peter is one of the most important characters in the study of the new testament in my opinion i think because he put himself out there and you see all of his ugliness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we see ourselves most in Peter. But there is a good reason that Peter was made the head of the twelve. We see from the scriptures that he was zealous. He was fearless. He was a leader. He wasn't afraid to speak up even when others were. He didn't shrink back into the shadows. He put himself out there. He was dedicated. All of these are praiseworthy qualities of a person and we should all desire them. 
However, when these qualities are present in a person whose confidence is in his own flesh, they are catastrophic to that individual. Rather than being a help in his walk, they were a hindrance to his walk. Without a doubt, Jesus wants zealous followers. All of us should display zeal. One of the apostles was named Simon the Zealot. It doesn't mean the other apostles were no less zealous. Paul the Apostle was one of the most zealous men for the law before he came to faith. He himself said this in Galatians chapter 1 verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And when he came to faith, God didn't take away his zeal. He redirected his zeal. It was misplaced, as was Peter's and the rest of the disciples. All of them had to come to an understanding of just what the cross meant. Because those who would put their confidence in their own flesh are still under the law. And the law, we are told from the scripture, is contrary to faith. And when we come to faith, according to Galatians, we are released from the law. Those who walk by faith, Paul said in Galatians, put no confidence in the flesh. Here's how he said it in Philippians as well, chapter 3. After he'd come to faith, Paul famously wrote, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That is the exact opposite of who Paul once was. But it is who we see Peter being in our passage Peter's confidence was all in himself. By no means, Lord, would I ever deny you. By no means, Lord, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Satan had asked to sift the disciples, all of them, like wheat, a metaphor illustrating his desire to get some of them to deny the Lord. And when Jesus tells his disciples this, he looks at Peter and says, Satan has demanded to have all of you. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And saying this, what Jesus does in a very humbling moment for Peter is he identifies to all the twelve who it was that will deny him. It put Peter on the spot. The others no doubt abandoned Jesus, but it was Peter who denied him. Peter's flesh kicks in and makes the boastful claim, Lord... Not me. I'll die with you if I have to. And here we see the boastful confidence of the flesh. All of us, before we come to faith, are confident in ourselves, in our ability, in our righteousness, in our works. But it was just a few hours later, Peter would indeed deny the Lord three separate times. And he went outside the gates, we are told, and wept bitterly. Here we see the deception of the flesh in Peter's life, and we can make application to ours. Just a few hours before, Peter was swearing he was ready to go to prison and to death with Jesus. Now he sits at the gate with uncontrollable weeping because the Lord was right. He did deny the Lord three times, not just once, not just twice, but three times. The weakness of the flesh put on display for us as a lesson we'll see. The third character in this passage is Jesus himself. We are told many things about Jesus in scripture. 
Scripture identifies him filling multiple roles. For instance, Jesus calls himself our friend. He is called our substitute and the propitiation for our sins. He's identified as both Savior and Redeemer. He's Creator. He is our ransom. He is our Lord. And there's three separate offices also that he fulfills, that of prophet, priest, and king. It is the role of priest that I think displays, is put on display in our passage here. And what I want to focus on, we see Jesus fulfilling this office of priest on behalf of not just Peter, but of all the apostles. Luke twenty-two thirty-one says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you. But then following in verse 32, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We already see the cruelty of Satan coming at the most vulnerable time, both to our Lord and the most vulnerable time to the apostles and wanting to destroy them. And here we see the mercy of our high priest interceding, pleading, praying for us. That's what the priest does. In the Old Testament, the priest went into the temple as a representative for the people, offering sacrifice covered with blood to plead for the sins of their people that God might forgive. He appealed to the character of God as the people's representative. That's what the priest did, and we see Jesus doing that here. But this particular example of Jesus as priest is more touching to me than most because of the immediate context of what was going on, and I want you to see this. As I said, this part of Luke's gospel is taking place during Holy Week, specifically Thursday night. And if you t- turned in, tuned in on Thursday night two weeks ago, I talked about how important that Thursday night was in all of human history. In my estimation, maybe the second or third most important day in all of human history. It was the night Jesus was betrayed. It was the night Jesus instituted communion and ushered in the new covenant in his blood. It was the night in which he was dragged off. But it was the night he wrestled with God in the garden over our souls. Lord, if it's possible to let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's when the victory was won and Jesus submitted himself to death. Extremely important night for Jesus. But it's touching that here, Jesus' mind is not on himself. Despite all that is going on in the heart and soul of Jesus and the angst that's going on, even causing great drops of blood to be sweat from his brow, what is Jesus doing as a priest? Interceding for us. What a merciful Savior. One, I think we can't truly fathom how important this context is. I think in all of this, if we were in that position of Jesus, we would be grieving and wallowing in our sorrow because of our own demise. We would have our minds on ourselves, mourning our fate. I'm sure each of us, with the stress that was laid upon us, would snap back at the least bit of ignorance that the disciples displayed. We would be short and patient with each other as we often are when we get stressed out, but not Jesus. Satan is trying to take advantage of this situation in this moment of weakness, and Jesus 
steps in in all of his strength and intercedes for us. It's beautiful. His thoughts to the end were on his flock. So what are some applications for us from these three characters as we begin to close? One of the most important ones I think Christians today we need to wake up to is to recognize the malice that exists in the world today is a satanically inspired malice. And his intent is to get men to destroy themselves through their arrogance because he hates us. We bear the image of God and we are the only of creation that does. And we are the only of creation to whom salvation is offered. It was not offered to Satan or those whom he caused to fall with him. Their judgment has been passed. His goal now is to destroy as many as he can. For us to be blind to this or to deny it only opens us up to its influence today. Satan has no power over the Christian according to scripture. His power has has reigned through the flesh. But what did Christ Jesus do? He came that we might be delivered from the flesh and might walk in the Spirit. So when we walk in the Spirit, Paul says, we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh where Satan does his meddling. It is only when the Christian begins to walk in the flesh that Satan can shipwreck your faith. We can resist Satan, Peter says, by drawing near to the Lord. And he must flee. But that doesn't mean Satan does not desire to sift you, church. And he will. He does, and his intent for you, we're told in 1 Peter 5, is to destroy you. Not only that, don't be surprised at his influence, even in holy places. As I said earlier, he was at work in Judas's heart in that upper room. One of the most holy places and encounters with the Lord that I know of in Scripture. He can be at work here this morning, sowing temptations, drawing our hearts away from God, the people of God, and the ways of God. This is why we are over and over and over encouraged to not forsake the gathering together as the habit of some. We are to be diligent in our worship. We are to walk in the obedience of faith. And above all, we are to seek the Lord with all of our heart and be drawing closer and closer to Him, especially as the day draws near. So be on your guard, as Paul said in Ephesians 6. Take seriously the, the command to take up the armor of God because you are wrestling against, against principalities and against powers that you cannot see. But you can see their effects. When you see hate, when you see malice, when you see destruction, when you see the boastful pride of the flesh, there we see the inspiration of our enemy. The second application I get from this teaches us what the secret to victory over sin is. And this is really the main point that gripped me this week. Sometimes when failure and the corresponding distress that follows from our failure happens, it was the wisdom of God to let it. 
Notice Jesus did not pray for Peter to be strong. He didn't pray for Peter to hold on and not deny him. Rather, I believe it was part of the Lord's intention to let Peter fail because Peter's confidence at that point was in himself, not in the Lord. Peter, with all sincerity, looked at Jesus in the face and told him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus had to be the spoiler to that and pop that inflated balloon by telling him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you've denied me three times. We see Jesus praying for Peter's faith not to fail. Part, but part of the deeper work of God in his saints is teaching them the strength of faith. And he correspondingly does that by teaching us the weakness of our flesh. And that's exactly what Jesus did for Peter. Peter had to know the misery of the, the weakness of his flesh. He had to experience the bitterness of failure if his faith was to remain strong. Because at this point, Peter's self-confidence was very strong. He needed to learn how weak he truly was. The strength of faith overcomes even the world, the Apostle John tells us. For some of us, in fact, probably most of us, we have far too much confidence in our own flesh and too little faith in the Lord. And I believe it is part of God's gracious plan in sanctifying us to allow us to taste the bitter springs of Mara, to use the Old Testament imagery, before he brings us into the promised waters of the Jordan. Because then we really understand how beautiful that promise was. So I'll ask you, where's your confidence this morning? Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, do you seek the Lord in his word, in prayer, in fellowship? If not, then your confidence is in the flesh. If we think we can go day by day by day without these spiritual disciplines in our life, we have yet to learn what faith means. We have to be drawing close to the Lord through prayer, through seeking his word, through fellowship. That's what faith, the life of faith is. So I would say this, if you are walking in this way, do not be surprised if the Lord lets you fail miserably. Do not be surprised if you have a moment like Peter's where you find yourself denying the Lord and weep bitterly over it. That might be the best thing that the Lord lets happen to you. But also be encouraged that this was the Lord's method of making Peter strong by first making him know his weakness. In fact, that's what Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, is it not? I would much rather boast in my weakness. Why? So that the power of God might rest in me. Because it is in weakness, Paul said, the grace of God is perfected. In this way, by knowing our weakness, the gaze of faith has only one place to look. And that's heavenward. The third application. Brayden is going to, well, he introduced this new song 
last week. We're going to sing it after the sermon. It's called Graves into Gardens. The two choruses of this song sing this. You turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. As I said earlier, the Lord in his mercy and wisdom let Peter fail miserably in the flesh that his confidence may no longer be in himself so that he might learn that it is through faith that we conquer because in faith we have access to the very power of God and we find Peter being restored after his miserable failure. That's the application. I want you to know that you will fail in your flesh and it is the Lord's wisdom to let you. But I also want you to know, church, he'll restore you. At the end of John's gospel, after the resurrection, when Peter was out on the sea again fishing, doing what he was good at in the flesh, Jesus very gently comes to him on the shore and calls him to be with him there. And he restores Peter three times corresponding to Peter's three denials. He puts Peter back in commission. It's the moment I think Peter truly came to understand grace and the power of the cross, the victory of sin. It was an Ebenezer in his life, and it can be an Ebenezer in your life. Failure is not the end for the Christian, as we're about to sing. He turns graves into gardens. That's the whole point. With the victory of the resurrection, sin does not have the final answer. In fact, it is only God who can cause all things to work together for good. Even failure, even miserable failure like Peter's. It became the most important moment in Peter's life, I believe. Because it taught Peter that most valuable lesson... Do not put your trust in the flesh, but in the Lord. We see the merciful Savior so vividly in this passage. We see how Jesus dealt with Peter, despite the gravity of Peter's denial. Jesus knew what Peter was going to do, and he still promised to restore him. He was still gentle and interceding for Peter. Because Jesus is still our high priest. Hebrews 9.24 says this, Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then 7.25, Hebrews 7.25 adds that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for you. Jesus is in the presence of God always making intercession for you. And I would add this, That Jesus is not so much before the throne of God making intercession as earthly priests were. Jesus, we are told, is on the throne of God as our king also. In other words, Jesus is our kingly priest with all the authority of the king he asks and his petition is granted for you. If you are that person, Christian or not, who's had some kind of failure in your life and it's miserable and it's weighing on your conscience and you're afraid to come to the light with it. I want you to hear what this passage is telling us. When you come to the light with that failure, 
That's where freedom and forgiveness is found. Do you see Jesus pleading for Peter? Yes. You don't see Jesus condemning him. It was Satan who wanted that. And he will if he could. Jesus will not count our sins, your sins against you when you come to him. He has paid the penalty in full. Believe this and you will be received and accepted just as Peter was. You will be restored just as Peter was. Faith can be birthed in your heart right now where you're sitting. Believe on the Lord in your heart and receive that grace. Receive that forgiveness. Because what this passage tells us is Jesus was always and ever looking out for you. In his hour of trial, he was interceding for the apostles. And then he went and paid the penalty for their sin. What a beautiful, beautiful truth for us this morning, church. I want to invite Braden up, and we're going to sing that last song together. And I know we can't hear you singing in the car, but I want you all to sing it out. The Lord's ability and power and grace is good. He turns our graves into gardens. As we sing this, uh, just let's give it to God this morning. Let's let's give Him wherever we're at, God, whatever whatever we're struggling with. Let's give it to God. We've all searched the world, and we realize that it, it can never satisfy us. Let's sing it out to Him this morning. the world but it couldn't feel me man's empty praise treasures in faith never enough but you came along and put me back together and
Shame 